There comes a point when the right to vote requires a fight to vote. MSNBC Films presents Battleground Georgia, a story that explores the ugly history of voter suppression and how Georgia is leading the charge against it. Something has to change. The old South is being replaced by the new South. Battleground Georgia, part of the Turning Point documentary series from executive producer Trevor Noah. Sunday at 9 p.m. Eastern on MSNBC. Tonight on The Readout. The gays want to control everything. This is part of the left-wing agenda, to do away with Christian values and substitute for Christian values the, uh, well, what is it, progressive concepts of, of morality. Televangelist Pat Robertson, famous for blaming gay people for 9-11 and black people for hurricanes, is dead. But his legacy of shattering the lines between church and state lives on in the quixotic presidential candidacy of Mike Pence. Also tonight, I want to tell you about an under-the-radar Supreme Court case that could affect where special counsel Jack Smith brings criminal charges as we await the possible indictment of Donald Trump. And surprise, Chief Justice John Roberts and Justice Brett Kavanaugh come to the defense of voting rights in an important victory for voters in Alabama. So what happens now for all the other efforts to redraw maps to marginalize voters of color? But we begin tonight with the Supreme Court. There was a surprising decision today reaffirming the landmark Voting Rights Act, and we're going to get to that a bit later. But I want to start with a lesser-known case that is still awaiting a ruling by the highest court in the land. The case is Smith versus the United States. It involves a 43-year-old Alabama software engineer, Timothy Smith, who was convicted in 2020 of stealing trade secrets from a Florida company. That case was tried in a northern district of Florida court where Smith was convicted and sentenced to 18 months in prison. A year and a half later, the 11th Circuit Court of Appeals overturned his conviction, claiming that the Florida court was the wrong venue for the case. In its ruling, the appeals court wrote, quote, we can say that venue would be proper in the southern district of Alabama, where Smith was located when he took the trade secrets. But venue was not proper in the Northern District of Florida because Smith never committed any essential conduct in that location, unquote. The case was argued just a few months ago in front of the Supreme Court with the question at hand being, does the government have the right to try a case for a second time in another court if they get the venue wrong the first time around? It's an, it's an interesting case all, all on its own, right? But it's also one that potentially impacts the special counsel's investigation of Donald Trump's mishandling of classified documents. For months now, we have reported on a D.C. grand jury hearing evidence and witness testimony regarding this case before going quiet these last few weeks. And just this week, we not only learned that a second grand jury has begun meeting in Florida regarding this case, but that, according to The Washington Post, the special counsel is planning to bring a significant portion of any charges in a federal court in southern Florida. Just like in real estate, this comes down to location, location, location. And without knowing how the Supreme Court will rule in the Smith case, former FBI general counsel Andrew Weissman and founding co-editor-in-chief of Just Security Ryan Goodman 
point out that the Smith case may well be complicating the calculus for special counsel Jack Smith, writing, all else being equal, the prudent prosecutor will be reluctant to choose a venue where, if the government gets the venue decision wrong, it cannot proceed to try the defendant in another district for her crimes. And when the defendant is Donald Trump, you don't want to leave any decision to chance. Joining me now is Barbara McQuaid, former U.S. attorney, MSNBC legal analyst and professor at the University of Michigan Law School. Hugo Lowell, political investigations reporter for The Guardian. And Anthony Coley, former Justice Department spokesperson under Attorney General Merrick Garland. I'm happy to welcome Anthony tonight as a new MSNBC justice and legal affairs analyst. Welcome, 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 Anthony. And the hazing it means you go first. So th- this is your hazing officially. So <laughs> you used Thank to work. You. Uh, go on. Thank you, Joy. I feel the love through the screen. It's good to be with you. Absolutely. Uh, You are absolutely right that the jury matters in a case like this, but what matters more are facts. And what we know now publicly is that there are an overwhelming amount of facts um, in this documents case. And I hate to even call it a documents case, Joy, because the fact of the matter is, is that we know that Donald Trump had 324 classified documents at Mar-a-Lago post-presidency. And he had multiple chances to turn that information over. And we know, based on the public record, that he refused to do so over uh, any number of occasions. And then I I really want to hear Barbara's analysis on this, but I do want to point out the other thing that matters in addition to the jury, in addition to the facts, is what prosecutors, uh, similar cases that prosecutors have charged. And there is a very strong uh, trail of this Justice Department and prior Justice Departments charging individuals for uh, illegally retaining uh, and concealing government information. And to stay with you for just one moment, because I, I do want to hear Barbara's analysis as well. Having worked for Merrick Garland and, and worked in that comms department, do you yeah. sense that, that that Supreme Court case that is still active right now, like we don't know how that's going to go, would be a mitigating factor that might make them pause to try to bring a case in D.C. just in case the venue issue could kick in. Does that track for you that they would feel more confident and more comfortable doing the case in Florida? Listen, I think um, what I heard Andrew Weissman say is that it would be prudent for a reasonable prosecutor to absolutely consider that case. And based on my experience, I haven't worked at DOJ for five months or now. That is certainly a reasonable, uh, certainly uh, could be a reasonable outcome based on my experience there. Uh, Barbara, all right. Your name was your name was called. You were summoned. So I would love for you to give your analysis of this, because it is kind of a fascinating twist to this. Right. Like it's not only sort of the way it's, it's not just what they have. And, you know, Anthony, laid out. You know, the facts are pretty damning. I think they're pretty clear, but it's where they do it, even though this might not be their first choice of a place to do it because it's a much different jury pool in Florida, let's just say, than D.C. Does that track for you that this makes more sense to do this here? And also, do you get the sense that the fact that we're not seeing like lots and lots of information about new witnesses means this is kind of drawn to a close? 
Yeah, it's hard to say, Joy. I will say this. Um, you know, having worked at the Justice Department for almost 20 years, prosecutors, despite perhaps some uh, reputation for being gunslingers, are very cautious. Uh, they want to be very sound. They want to make sure they've got a decision that is not going to be reversed on appeal because they want to win not just the battle, but the war. Um, and the venue rules can be a little bit tricky. If a uh, conspiracy is charged, for example, it can be charged in any district where any part of the conspiracy occurred. And so that could be either D.C. or Florida would be correct. So if they're not charging a conspiracy, however, and it's just retention of documents and obstruction of justice, it may be that the bulk of the activity in this case occurred in Florida. So we're not sure. I think there's still a possibility that there could be an indictment against Trump out of D.C. and then a one-off indictment against, you know, perhaps a witness who lied to the FBI out of Florida. So there are a lot of moving parts here and yeah. a lot of options. But I will agree with Anthony that the Justice Department is nothing if they are not prudent. Yeah. Uh, well, Hugo, let me let me go to you because you actually are in Miami. And there's been a lot of sort of activity coming from the Trump side. You know, he had complained, well, nobody told me that I was uh, that I was uh, a target. But actually, the target letter went to his lawyer. So I don't think anybody in the Justice Department is going to like literally like, hey, Donald Trump, call him. Um, but they've also been sort of screaming he has on his um, pretend Twitter about misconduct, prosecutorial misconduct and trying to sort of impugn the prosecutors who may be involved in a case. Give us more on that. Yeah. So, you know, we reported yesterday that Trump actually received his target designation in a formal letter last week uh, and actually days before the Trump lawyers went into the Justice Department and met with the special counsel, Jack Smith, and a senior career official in the deputy attorney general's office. Um, but, you know, this is now coming to a head because what they were talking about in that meeting uh, and what they separately put in a sealed motion to the chief judge in Washington was an allegation of prosecutorial misconduct on the part of one of the top prosecutors in Jack Smith's office. There is the uh, chief of the counterintelligence section uh, called uh, Jay Bratt, who we believe is actually still in Florida after he came down uh, for some grand jury activity uh, yesterday. You know, we saw him on the plane, actually. But the allegation is that Jay Bratt discussed a pending judicial application that one of the lawyers uh, involved in this case um, had submitted. And it was in the context of trying to get his client to flip on Trump. And in this case, the client was none other than Walt Nauder, the valet. And this wasn't going to be an issue, I think, until Bozberg, the chief judge in D.C., requested that that lawyer submit an attestation, uh, basically a letter confirming the allegation, and they did so yesterday. And now Bozberg seems to be treating this very seriously. And even if this, you know, doesn't result in anything, the fact that this is now pending before the chief judge, I think, suggests a degree of seriousness that we might not have seen beforehand. Anthony, I'm going to go to you on that, because the, the allegation that Trump put on his truth social, just to be honest, wasn't truthful. It, it's not. There's right. no allegation being made that um, Mr. Bratt just said, hey, you might get right. a judgeship <clears throat> in the Biden administration right. if you flip on Trump. That is not what the allegation right. actually factually is. It's that he brought up the fact that he was or interested in a judgeship in talking with him about the potential cooperation of Trump's valet. Talk a little bit about that, because that doesn't yeah. sound like misconduct to me. Uh, but, I'll, you know, I'm obviously not a former Justice, no. I'm not a Justice Department lawyer. <laughs> no, but you're right. And let me say this. I was at the Justice Department for two years. I worked directly with Jay Brad. I know Jay Brad to be a meticulous, a thoughtful, a by-the-book prosecutor. 
enjoy it. I'm not telling you what I heard. I'm telling you what I know. So I just, I take for, uh, with a grain of salt, um, the, uh, what uh, individuals uh, told Hugo, not his reporting, but the people who told him that. I think what's happening here is just a typical Donald Trump playbook of trying to distract um, and pull attention away from his very real legal problems. That, I suspect, is what's happening here. And Barb, you know, just to, for, for the lay folks out there, if somebody is questioning um, an attorney who represents a potential material witness or potential target, and they bring up something about them and they say, did you apply to be a judge? Did you run for judge? Do you have an interest in this? Is that per se misconduct? And could something like that interfere with a case, a potential case? Because right now there is no case against someone like Donald Trump or even somebody like the valet, if the valet was a target. So the context matters. I think it's very important to find out exactly what was said. You know, so far, all we have is that this topic was mentioned. It may have been small talk. It may have had nothing to do with the cooperation right. whatsoever. So I think the facts matter very much. And this strikes me, as Anthony said, right out of the playbook of trying to distract and go on the offensive. Yeah. But even if Jay Bratt personally did something wrong, that does not exonerate Donald Trump from crimes he might have committed. And so right. that would not come before a jury. Perhaps Jay Bratt gets removed. If, if this is true and if it's as bad as it could be, he would get removed from the case. He may be disciplined. But that does not in any way exonerate Donald Trump and the case would proceed. Uh, Hugo, it seems to me that if they're making these kinds of noises, that sounds to me like fear, nervousness in the Trump camp. Yeah, look, this is, um, I think, more complicated than it seems on, on first glance. I think, you know, these allegations, actually, the lawyer in question didn't want to make these allegations. Um, and I mean, kind of have to go back a little bit. But when Trump's lawyers wrote the letter to the attorney general to request a meeting, there have actually been two versions of that letter. The initial one actually outlined this allegation, among other things. And the law in question, Stanley Woodward, actually pared that back and told the Trump lawyers, you know, please don't raise this because I don't actually want to publicize this allegation, in part because, you know, I don't want to draw attention to my pending uh, judicial application. So I think that's the first point. And I think the second point is, from the readout that we have got from the letter, and you know that describes the meeting, um, there is some additional context here about how basically Jay Bratt and the other prosecutors sat with Woodward in the sixth floor conference room at the Justice Department and told him, look, we think your client has made material misstatements in this case, and we want you to cooperate or your client to cooperate with us against the government. And when Woodward demurred, Jay Bratt is said to have opened his folio, looked at at the paper in front of him and says, oh, you know, I see that you have uh, applied to be a judge. And, you know, I didn't take you for a Trump guy, but I know you'll do the right thing. And I think Woodward no, just came away no, from that meeting no. with a lot of with a lot of um, uh, with a kind of weird sense of what happened. And that was basically no. the allegation that was described in the letter. David, you want to get in? I mean, Anthony, you want to get in? <laughs> Yeah, no, that just doesn't sound like the Jay Brad I, that I know. And let's even assume that it happened, which I highly doubt. Brad, um, before he was in the special counsel's office, worked in the National Security Division. In neither one of those positions would he have influence over federal judgeships. So there we go. L- l- there's another question I want to bring up. And this is the question of copies versus originals. Do we have time? I hope we have time to just play this really quickly. Or I can just describe it. Timothy Palatori, who's a former attorney for Trump, who's part of a team handling the Justice Department's classified docs 
investigation. Spoke with the great Lawrence O'Donnell um, the other night on The Last Word. And, Barb, he brought up a defense, a potential defense saying that the paper, the, the, the items found in Trump's office were copies, not originals. Does that matter? If you have classified document documents and you take a picture of it with your phone and then you take that with you, does it make a difference in terms of your potential legal liability? Not a valid defense, Joy. It is the information, not the paper that it's printed on. Right. And I would add quickly, Joy, when I was at the Justice Department, you weren't allowed to have cell phones in these skiffs and these secure. Uh, so cell phones shouldn't have even been anywhere near these classified documents. Yeah. The idea that, that, is what happened. Yeah. The idea is, well, you know, I, I didn't do anything wrong. It's just a copy of a classified document about Ron's nuclear secrets. No, no biggie. Uh, Barbara McQuaid, Hugo Lowell and our new family member, Anthony Coley. Welcome thank and you. thank you. All right. And be sure thank to you. check out Anthony's op-ed laying out the extent of Donald Trump's legal jeopardy on msnbc.com and up next an unexpected ruling from the supreme court has saved the voting rights act the landmark voting rights act at least for now but the damage has already been done i'll explain when the readout continues after this today and every day planned parenthood is committed to ensuring that everyone has the information and resources they need to make their own decisions about their bodies including abortion care Lawmakers who oppose abortion are attacking Planned Parenthood, which means affordable, high-quality, basic health care for more than 2 million people is at stake. The right to control our bodies and get the health care we need has been stolen from us. And now, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills that would block people from getting the sexual and reproductive care they need. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves health care. It's a human right. That's why they fight every day to push for common-sense policies that protect our right to control our own bodies and against policies that interfere with decisions between patients and their doctor. Planned Parenthood needs your support now more than ever. With supporters like you, we can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future. That's PlannedParenthood.org future. Today, in genuinely shocking news, the conservative majority Supreme Court ruled 5-4 in favor of black voters in a congressional redistricting case in Alabama, with two conservative justices, Roberts and Kavanaugh, joining the three liberals in rejecting a Republican-led effort to weaken a landmark voting rights law. It definitely tells you something about the standing of the court when there is shock that they didn't further gut American voting rights. The heart of this case was whether Alabama had unfairly carved up its congressional districts, creating just one majority black seat out of seven in a state where more than one in four residents is black. The state claimed they used a race neutral benchmark last year. A lower court with two Trump appointees on it ruled that the map violated the Voting Rights Act by diluting the votes of black Alabamians and ordered them to redraw it. The ruling was stayed by the Supreme Court using its infamous shadow docket, effectively helping Republicans win back the House majority. During oral arguments, it sounded like the majority of justices agreed with Alabama. But it is possible that Chief Justice John Roberts recognized the precarious position that the court stands in with the public following the overturning of Roe v. Wade and a string of ethics scandals. Now, whatever, whatever was behind the 5-4 surprise vote, Alabama will now have to draw a new map for next year's elections. This ruling will undoubtedly impact similar cases in Louisiana and Georgia. 
And in a plot twist, Roberts, who wrote the majority opinion in the Shelby case that gutted the Voting Rights Act, wrote the majority opinion today. He wrote, the heart of these cases is not about the law as it exists. It's about Alabama's attempt to remake our Section 2 jurisprudence anew. That single-minded view of Section 2 cannot be squared with the VRA's demand that courts employ a more refined approach, and we decline to adopt an interpretation of Section 2 that would revise and reformulate threshold inquiry that has been the baseline of our Section 2 jurisprudence for nearly 40 years. Basically, he's relying heavily on stare decisis, the magic words, which basically means that courts and judges should honor precedence. Notably, they didn't care about stare decisis when they overturned Roe. That said, this is very good news, and we'll take it. But that doesn't mean we're out of the woods. Kavanaugh, while siding with the majority, signaled that he is willing to blow up the Voting Rights Act in the future, writing separately. Even if Congress in 1982 could constitutionally authorize race-based redistricting under Section 2 for some period of time, the authority to conduct race-based redistricting, redistricting cannot extend indefinitely into the future. And then there was Clarence Thomas who continues to make it clear and to make clear the irony that despite being one, to paraphrase pre-Trump Kanye, Clarence Thomas doesn't care about black people. In his dissent, he wrote, a proper districting benchmark must be race neutral. It must not assume a priori that an acceptable plan should include any particular number or proportion of minority controlled districts. In its main argument here, Alabama simply carries these principles to their logical conclusion. We indulge the pernicious tendency of assigning Americans to creditor and debtor races, even to the point of redistributing political power on that basis. Joining me now is Ellie Mistal, Justice Correspondent for the Nation, and Maya Wiley, President of the Leadership Conference on Civil and Human Rights. I am going to come to the table to you first, because I think we, have, we share a similar view that this might have been a face-saving ruling, but what is your view of why it went this way and why those two justices went with the liberals? Yeah, first of all, to be clear, I am shocked, right? Ro- John <laughs> Roberts has been an enemy of black people voting rights for his entire career, Facts. all right? And this Supreme Court has either rejected or whittled down the Voting Rights Act at every opportunity it's had since Robert came on the court until today. Yeah. So, you know, jaw off the floor. Okay, pretty shocking. Why? Well, let's go back to Clarence Thomas's dissent, right? He's talking about a race-neutral benchmark. Well, how do you set up a race-neutral benchmark? Alabama said, use these computers. We've run a bunch of computer programs, and this is what it is, and blah, 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 blah. And John Roberts hates computers like John Connor hates computers in the Terminator (laughs) series, all right? Now, I always thought that Roberts hated black people more, but it turns out that when you tell John Roberts that a computer can tell you what's race neutral, Roberts understands, well, that means the computer can tell you what's racist. And that means judges don't get to make the final decision on how much racism is allowed in voting. That means potentially a computer would get to make that decision. And John Roberts doesn't like the computers. He doesn't like math. And I think more than anything else, that's why Roberts went against his own type, against his own prior arguments to uphold the Voting Rights Act after a career of trying to destroy it. Very interesting. He basically he thinks AI is going to replace the court, which yeah. actually might be better a better outcome. Uh, Maya, let's go into this because Alabama. I'm just going to put up a map here that shows how egregious this is. You and I have talked about this before in Alabama. These, if you guys can see it there, the purple shows you black. It shows you black representation and how that big circle is around all basically where the black folks live, and they're all in packed in one district. That's 27 percent of the population. They get one. 
uh, member of Congress. Talk about this ruling from your point of view as somebody who's fighting this fight on the ground in the courts. Yeah, well, first, let me say I agree with Ali. We were all shocked and surprised happily and pleasantly because the Supreme Court did the right thing. But it's exactly because of that map. Because, look, 27 percent of the population is black. In 1982, when Congress amended the Voting Rights Act of 1965, it said, look, voter dilution, no go. You can't just dilute black people's vote. Uh, and what the court did, the Supreme Court said in its precedent is right. You can't dilute the black vote. And here are the ways in which we look to see in we whether we do that. In Alabama, we saw an 80,000 person increase in the size of the black population between the 2020 census and the uh, previous decennial census. That means the population number goes up. You should be able to see more opportunity for black people to have the ability to select who leads them. And instead, what we saw is the state, the state legislature saying, actually, no, we're going to find a way to make sure that there's less ability, not more ability, for blacks to be able to say who leads them. Yeah. By the way, if we were truly a, a, a country that said we need to make sure that we're being fair, that we're being just, how would we ever go into any community of any other racial group and say, you know what, we're going to either pack you all into one district and then split the rest of you up so that even if you're a third of the state, you can send one member to Congress yeah. out of five. That is simply, clearly on its face an effort to say we just don't like who you vote for yeah. and we want to make sure you can't actually undermine us, the powerful few. And in this case, it's one, in se one out of seven. And Mississippi has one the same scheme. They got one, you know. And so this actually could impact other states. Louisiana, same thing. You have, you know, the South is where half of African-Americans live. And yet in all of these states, they get one member of Congress. They put, them all, put all the blacks in there, South Carolina, all these states, you get one, and they split up the rest, which is completely, um, but, I, you know, what I do wonder, because this could actually result in up to like eight more members of Congress who are African-American. But I will note that this Supreme Court let that map lie in 2022, along with the illegal Florida map. Uh, so they engineered Republican outcomes, even as they're supposedly fixing. Ah, uh, you saw what they did there, huh? I did. Because what happened was that this was sued. This map was sued before the before midterms, the election, right? Yeah. And the lower court said this map is clearly racist before the midterms. And it went up to the Supreme Court. And by a vote of five to four, with Roberts actually also saying this was a bad decision, Brett Kavanaugh was the swing vote. And he allowed Alabama to use its racist maps for the last election, yeah. which helped Republicans gain control of the House. And it's Brett Kavanaugh who looks like the buffoon right now yeah. for flipping at the late date. So now it's all like, oh, well, it was clearly racist. Looks like the district court was right all along. Yeah. But it turns out that Alabama got this whole federal election cycle with a racist map. There is so much to talk about because, it, first of all, it feels like a setup a little bit because they have a whole bunch of other cases like affirmative action, um, you know, and all sorts of other stuff coming down the pike that they could actually really hurt folks on. Um, and so it feels like that could happen. I will note, and this is, the, uh, it, 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 Tina, am I saying, am I going with this right now? Because I don't see it up here. But Donald Trump, uh, I will just note for my two, legal eagles here is putting on his social media platform uh, that he is being indicted. He is he is saying that. So we don't have any confirmation of that. It's Donald Trump. He kind of lies says, a lot. 
he says that he's going to appear in the in court in Miami on Tuesday at three o'clock. So that is from Donald Trump. Again, that is not from a news outlet. It's from Truth Social, which is not the news. But Donald Trump is not good at filtering himself. He is not good at discipline. And when things happen, he's not good at not saying it and not spilling the beans. He's like the ultimate Scooby-Doo villain. If this is true, so I'm going to ask him. We've got two great uh, legal minds here. Um, Would it make sense? um, And I, I guess I will start with you here at the table, Ellie for the potential defendant to make such an announcement before there's been any word from his attorneys, could he have been informed and received not just a target letter, but a you get an indicted uh, notice? His attorneys could know uh, beforehand, although I'll just point out that with the Bragg indictment, Trump said he was going to be indicted on Tuesday and then it didn't happen for another That's week true. and a half. So we don't know when the timing is, but it's entirely possible that somebody within Trump world has a good idea that an indictment is coming sometime next week and that he will be required to turn himself in peacefully. I'm not I wouldn't be surprised if that's if that's the case. This has been coming for quite a long time. He stole yeah. documents. He, he did. And he put him in his in his bedroom um, and in his desk drawer. And, you know, Maya, the thing about it is that the, the thing about Trump's criming, alleged criming, is that it's all quite obvious. Right. I mean, he he, he goes and he has his lawyer, Michael Cohen, pay off. Stormy Daniels, and then he writes him a reimbursement check in his signature magic marker signature and hands it to him in the Oval. So he's not subtle. And in this case, he goes on CNN and on his friend Hannity's show and says, yes, I took the documents. I can take the documents. They're my documents. So he says he did. What do you make of this possibility? And again, possibility that this is, in fact, happening soon. Well, uh, agree with Ellie. We don't know whether or when it's actually happening, but there really is no benefit to Donald Trump to admit that he's about to be indicted, whether or not we know what day it's going to happen. I think his own former lawyers, from Bill Barr to Ty Cobb, have said he's in real trouble and he very well may be indicted. So that's because the evidence, just what's in the public record, has been so strong, including his own public statements about it. But here's the point. I think at the end of the day, what is true here is Donald Trump is likely to face additional charges. The question is how many, how many counts uh, and how quick or slow the process will be, because we know once he gets there, he's going to be saying he was a victim, that it's political, uh, despite all the evidence and despite the fact that no one else who owes public office would be uh, able to get away with endangering national security and the national defense, which is very possibly one of the charges that he will face is the Espionage Act. The the one benefit I could see, um, Ellie, in making this kind of announcement or sort of getting the bad news out himself is that the likelihood is that a case such as this would happen in Florida. Florida is his backyard. It's Trump country. It's a very far right wing. It's become a very far right wing state. And the jury pool there is going to be more Trumpy. And so maybe this is sort of speaking to a potential jury. I'm not sure about that, just because I think that, I mean, one of my problems with, well, how long it's taken to get to this stage where he might be indicted is that to go from where he's indicted to an actual trial, we're talking 
talking about another year. We're right. talking about something either right before the next presidential election, which I don't think is going to happen, or most likely right after the presidential election if he should go on and lose that election. Right. So I don't think it's jury tampering. What I do think, quite frankly, is that putting it's the same thing again. He tried this with Bragg. It's putting it out there early, early so that maybe his people rally to his defense in the way that MAGA people sometimes rally to the defense of Donald Trump. I think he is trying to gin up some outrage and some public support over what he will perceive and what his people will perceive as an unfair prosecution. And I think that could be the benefit of of putting it out there early. But I don't think it's going to work. Well, I mean, it's not going to work, except my, you know, Florida is is not the Florida that people used to think of as just like lots of oranges, beaches and Disney. Florida is now the home to one of the largest concentrations of extremist groups in the country. Uh, It has now become a beachhead for uh, racial extremism, Nazism, open Nazism, people marching in the streets, even in places like South Florida, places like Orlando. Um, It has become a kind of headquarters. The Proud Boys have a huge base in Florida, in Miami-Dade County. They have members uh, or at least affinity people on the Broward School Board. They have essentially taken over the Miami-Dade Republican Party. So Florida is in many ways um, a place where the danger um, to the country. How many Floridians were there on January 6th? A lot. They are a, a huge source of extremism and pro-Trump extremism specifically. You know, and sadly, and also, I, and I will an add increase. one more thing. It's also a state now where you can carry a firearm without a permit. Sorry, go Maya. Yes. No, I mean, look, you're pointing, uh, Joy, to uh, sadly statistics we've been seeing rise and we know it increases in election cycles, the the violence of, of hate and extremist groups. Uh, but, you know, I think we also have to remember how many average Floridians do care about the rule of law and do abhor hate and violence. And simply put, uh, it's going to be incumbent upon all those very rational, sane Floridians to recognize, do you want democracy and do you want peace? Or are you going to go with anyone who, if, if, I'm not saying Donald Trump has or will uh, in this particular case, but goes to stoking that, exactly what that means for the future of the country. And having been doing work with community-based groups, particularly in Central Florida, I'll say there are a lot of folks who are getting active and engaged because they are concerned about preserving their state's democracy. And that does matter. And we have to help keep them safe at the federal level, ensure that the federal government is doing everything it can to make sure those resources are getting there to protect the people. Yeah. And I will note that the governor of Florida is no longer Jeb Bush, who you can say whatever you want about his policies and whether you agree to them or not. He was a rational actor. The governor is now somebody whose entire base of their presidential campaign is uh, hate and grievance and rage. Um, and I will now um, bring in uh, our, our MSNBC's chief legal analyst, who conveniently was not able to leave the building in time. <laughs> um, and sometimes when you don't get out, you get back in. This is the way it works. We now, we do not know. And again, I, I love your show. One of the main reasons I love it is that you're always very careful to say, we only know what we know. Mm-hmm. All we know right now is that Donald Trump is truthing, truthing that 
he's getting indicted and that he believes it will happen on Tuesday. He's done it before. What do you make of the fact that he is doing it again? Uh, you make a very important point, Joy. We have seen a version of this with a different jurisdiction in yeah. the New York case where he did announce this and his timing was off initially. Um, but the core of it, that his lawyers have been warned, we know in this case, we've independently confirmed they were told he's a target, which is a step to this. So it is big news that Donald Trump is doing that again. We are now frantically in breaking news mode, yeah. tracking this down. I suspect this is a night to keep on the news. We're going to yes. learn more in the coming moments. But I think the specificity of his post is interesting. So he talks about things that only a lawyer or someone who'd done some homework would figure out, that there would be a schedule for this, mm -hmm. uh, that this would be, as he said, in part of his post, as you've reported, that he would go Tuesday to the federal courthouse in Miami to turn himself in. And then he included the, the regular bluster and attacks that he has. So what we're reporting, and it's accurate on the screen here on, on the Marita, like this is uh, Donald Trump says he's been indicted. Right. He says this. But the context that his lawyers were recently given the, the respectful target, target yeah. warning, which is what you're supposed to get, uh, matches this. And so this is a whole different world. If what Donald Trump says tonight is true or broadly true, that if it's a difference of a few days or sure. even a week, if he has been federally indicted and will be following what the DOJ ultimately does through actual charging and an actual possible arraignment, um, then this is the biggest problem he's ever had. This is bigger than New York. Sure. This is much more significant than the many other legal clashes he's had. Mm -hmm. He faced down Mueller at a time where there was a ceiling where Mueller was not allowed to indict him. Right. So everything that happened, including other people went to prison, we remember, had that ceiling. Jack Smith does not have this ceiling. Right. Jack Smith has a lot of power. He has clearly rattled Trump's lawyers and now Donald Trump. They are clearly afraid that they are facing what they were warned about, that he is the target of the indictment in this probe. And let me ask you this, because this is something I think that it, it's language that we use on uh, our shows because this is what happened. But just to explain it, a target letter is what it sounds like, a target yep. letter. But is there a scenario in which a person receives a target letter, but then they are not indicted? Is it possible that a target letter is more frightening than it is completely um, sort of, you know, I don't know, it, that indicative of what's going to absolutely 100 percent happen? I would say legally, very rarely, uh, to make a very simple comparison, uh, most planned weddings occur. Right. Every so often you get the invite, you fly out there and they don't. Right. It is that level, or I would say even higher. And that's before you involve a former president. So right. as soon as we've reported that the DOJ did in fact tell the lawyers that Donald Trump was targeted, yeah. it sounded like a matter of when. Now tonight you have it. The whole world is going to, to gear up for this tonight in the yeah. coming days because Donald Trump is not only confirming that, he is saying that his lawyers told him he is de facto indicted. He's saying he has to go to a federal arraignment. Uh, and we'll have time to discuss this in your breaking coverage, Joy. But a federal case, there's a reason why they say don't make a federal case out of it. Yeah. Right. They don't say don't make a New York misdemeanor out of it. Yeah. OK. They say don't make a federal case out of it. And I don't think Jack Smith would go anywhere near saying this man was targeted unless he thought he had all the goods and evidence to win this case and thus to convict Donald Trump and try to put him in prison. Now, if he's a defendant, he's legally presumed innocent. And we'll report all of that out. Um, but this is more than a federal case. This is the first ever targeting of a former president. Yeah. Let me bring in uh, everybody. Stay. Please stay with me. We're not letting anyone go. We're going to now be joined by former U.S. attorney Harry Littman. So, Harry, you have been confident that this was coming. We don't know that it is here. Again, we will reiterate Donald Trump is saying on his 
pretend Twitter his tooth social that he is being indicted, that he will be in court on Tuesday. He has cried wolf before, but it wasn't really crying wolf because he was indicted in New York. It just he didn't get the day right. What do you make of this, given the news and all that has accumulated up up until today? Yeah, I think the wolf is here and he's getting out front of it. Look, to to Ari's point, many more uh, grooms and brides leave at the at the precipice of a wedding than than people get target letters and aren't indicted. I, it's happened once in my career. It really follows, even though in by its terms, it's possible it follows like day from night. The only time it doesn't is because one purpose of a target letter is to let a defendant go in front of the grand jury, testify, try to talk them out of it. That actually happened with Carl Rove uh, in in the um, the Scooter Libby case. But that's it. Or if they come forward with something that really gives the DOJ pause and they have to chew on it for a few weeks, but they gave them nothing on Monday. So everyone who was familiar with practice knew once that target letter came, not only was everything all ready and the table all set, but it was imminent as in terms of days, at least, if nothing in the Southern District of Florida was was which seemed a little bit odd was going to upend it. So, yep, it was. I, I credit this now. And um, it makes all the sense uh, in the world from his having received that letter. And Ellie, it, it, there is reporting that essentially Donald Trump's defense plan is running for president. And that, that is really the extent of the plan. How that, does if this is happening, you just talked a little bit about the fact that it's all going to converge on a an active campaign for president. As, as Ari is, uh, points out, he is innocent until proven guilty. Right. But based on what we know in the public sphere, his best way out of this is becoming president again, clothing himself in the power of the executive office and, and protecting himself from prosecution. It is literally the plan that Julius Caesar had. I mean, I'm not making yeah. that up. The, the whole the Caesar's entire plan was to avoid prosecution by becoming pro-council and dictator of Rome. And in the same level, Donald Trump's best way to get out of this at this point is to run for president and win. Because if he's not, if he's not president, if he's just a private citizen, he's his peers of soul and classified documents, as Ari is pointing out, the D, Donald Trump has never faced a litigant with the kinds of resources that the Department of Justice and Jack Smith can bring to bear on him and his little cabal. So he's going up against the, the most difficult litigant of his entire life, and he's got no great defense for what he did. His best way out is trying to dupe the American people into electing him president a second time. And the thing that he's had going in his favor is the extreme deference um, of the Department of Justice um, toward a former president, at least the perception that there was extreme deference. How does that deferential attitude change when it is a former president who is attempting to be president again, but who is no longer in office? Well, it's a great question, Joy, because what you're alluding to is the deference they once showed him will now, if there's a trial, be used against Donald Trump. Um, because, yes, there are aspects of the presidency and even the transition, because people point to the Pence case or other examples. Where did the document go? Well, there is initial deference if you tell the truth. There is initial deference if you just hand it back. I mean, a lot of other people don't even get that. A lot of Joe Blow citizen, you yeah. got classified documents, game over. That's right. But there is a history of, you know what, whatever type of president you were, and people can can leave their their thoughts on that to the side of the legal. You know what? Give it back. You're probably good. Mike Pence. Yeah. He didn't do that. 
Ev, uh, his, his lawyer, Corcoran, we're going to hear a lot more about, who was making voice notes, making those. Why are you making phone iPhone voice notes? Um, because apparently he was concerned that, like Michael Cohen and many other examples, he was being pulled into a new active crime, obstruction of justice. In the Mueller era, we were told, well, you're also overseeing the DOJ. Maybe it's murky. Ain't murky now. OK, you got a lot of evidence that the deference he was given was abused. And then you have a judge who approved the search warrant that's never been overturned and found probable cause for the crime fraud exception. Translation looks like you and your lawyer are committing new crimes. So we pierce the privilege. So, again, uh, presumed innocent. But if I'm handicapping what is now likely to be a federal case, Joy, yeah. it's very bad for the defendant when you have those standing rulings, the lawyer and the idea that there's more than one crime that's already been sort of half litigated, again, presumed innocent, mm-hmm. but a lot more evidence than, say, starting from scratch. Like, right. whose document is this? We'll start from scratch. Alpha One Niner, commence Wi-Fi device checklist. Laptops on. TVs streaming. Game console console. Smart thermostat set for cuddle time. Doorbell camera. Oh, my package is here. Fast, reliable, able to power tons of devices inside your home at once. All systems go, you are clear for takeoff. This is Xfinity Internet, Wi-Fi built to wow. And watch the short film, The Aviators, now playing at Xfinity.com. Restrictions apply, actual speeds vary and are not guaranteed. On the MSNBC podcast, How to Win 2024, political experts, former Senator Claire McCaskill and Democratic strategist Jennifer Palmieri examine the campaign strategies unfolding in this all-important election. The focus is on the voters that are not necessarily in your corner now. If Democrats are going to win in 2024, we have to be able to explain what is happening at the border and what the solutions are. Search for How to Win 2024 wherever you get your podcasts. New episodes every Thursday. Let me uh, now uh, cut you off uh, just to make this announcement that NBC News has now confirmed Donald Trump has been indicted. Uh, He has been summoned to appear on Tuesday. It turns out this time he was not crying wolf. He was accurate. I want to go to Ryan Riley, who is one of our justice uh, reporters, justice department, justice reporters. Ryan, uh, give us the full update. I have given the summary. That's right. I mean, we don't have the specificity of thus far, but he will be uh, in court on Tuesday. I mean, this is a a really historic moment, Um, something we were sort of waiting on pins and needles all day for potentially at the Justice Department. But, you know, it was kind of quiet there. And I think that that's sort of an indication of uh, the way that they've handled this probe. They really have really followed the guidelines uh, to the book here. And I think some of the stuff that we saw come out and even indications that we saw that this was happening happening uh, in Miami uh, was pretty late in the game that reporters really got a sense of that, uh, a sense of that fact that that was happening out of Miami, that this had all sort of moved because that's a sort of sort of what ended up happening. They used uh, D.C. as sort of an investigative grand jury and eventually moved all of this uh, down to Miami where most of the, the alleged crimes actually took place. So, um, uh, you know, this is confirming what Donald Trump has said on his social media. And every indication is that uh, the former president of the United States, uh, Donald Trump, has become uh, uh, the first uh, former president to face federal charges, uh, twice impeached, uh, charged on the state level. Here we are uh, yeah. charged with federal crimes. Uh, and it is a moment. Uh, this is an historical moment. This has never happened to a former United States president. Uh, and cue Rachel Maddow. Uh, when something this historic happens, there is one person uh, that we all, I think, want to hear from. Rachel Maddow is on the phone. Rachel, uh, what do you make of this news that NBC News has now confirmed that Donald Trump has been indicted in the documents mishandling case? Well, Joy, it's one of those days when um, 
you both think like, wow, this is this is happening in my generation, in my lifetime. We're the first people to see federal criminal charges against a former president. Um, it has a shock factor to it, but at the same time, I think we've really known it was coming for some time. And um, I, I don't know. I mean, it, there's there's there are elements of what we know thus far um, that cut in the former president's. Uh, to his benefit, I think, in terms of what could have happened here. I mean, I'm sure he would rather face a jury in Florida than a jury in Washington, D.C., just as a matter of pure trial strategy. Um, If this means that the charges are very specific to the handling of classified documents, and we'll have to see what the exact charges are and how many there are um, and how serious they are, but if, if they are specific to that and not to broader issues of election meddling and trying to stay in power after he had been voted out of office. Um, you know, there's a there's an interesting track record that he can look to in terms of, you know, other people, even other high profile people, like for example, former General da- or General retired General David Petraeus, um, who have been um, dinged for 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 criminal conduct like that and essentially gotten a slap on the wrist and gone on with their careers. That said, some other people have had to do prison time for these things. So it feels like both unbelievably serious in terms of what this means for us as the American people and a new benchmark low for our politics and what we expect of our political leaders, uh, it also seems like it might not be the worst case scenario that Trump might have been imagining, at least not at this point. You know, uh, the one time that we came close uh, to an historic moment like this, obviously, was Richard Nixon, who, you know, we we, we all have interviewed uh, former prosecutors on that case who were very clear that he would have been indicted, uh, mm. but for the intervention, um, you know, of, uh, of, of the, the, the the succeeding president who uh, pardoned him. And then, of course, there was Sparrow Agnew, who was also indicted. But this feels like um, it is on a sort of level of its own, Rachel, because this does also involve the national security of the United States uh, and the casual treatment um, of our national security by a president who, for whatever reason, whether it was just for braggadocio to prove a point against uh, General Mark Milley or for whatever reason, did seem to sort of abrogate to himself um, the authority and power, even after he wasn't president anymore, to use our national security for himself. That is just on a different level from even the, the worst things that Nixon did. Yeah, it's a, it's a really good point. And we'll have to see, A, what the charges are, B, how serious they are, and 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 see what they say about motive. Because you're right, Joy, if we're talking about a national security and ind- indictment that implicates him in using information the disclosure of which could hurt, materially hurt the national security of the United States, and he discloses it anyway, or plans to disclose it, or at least retain it anyway, for his own personal purposes against the interests of the country, that is a very different thing. I mean, both with Nixon and Agnew, they were both facing um, serious charges in Agnew's case. We know that he was facing 40 felony counts. Um, the conceivable indictment of Nixon, we sort of have to we have to write that ourselves a little bit um, because of the Ford pardon. But in those cases, it really was about venality. You know, it was about corruption. It was about abuse of power for personal gain, um, but not necessarily in a way that was about, you know, screwing our allies and screwing our own national security on the international stage. And so 
whatever this indictment says uh, when it materializes, presumably we'll see it on Tuesday, whatever it says about motive is going to be really important in terms of us assessing just what kind of treachery is being alleged here. And you're right, it is, even with the examples of Nixon and Agnew, it's new. It is uh, extraordinary, an extraordinary uh, night uh, to be here. Uh, and, and I am so grateful, uh, Rachel Maddow, for the opportunity to speak with you. Thank you. I'm glad you were at the desk when it happened, my dear. <laughs> really not. I am not jealous. I'm glad it was you. <laughs> well, I was actually going to ask if you might want to drive down <laughs> and come down because I have our, our, our good friend, Nicole Wallace, and we could, we could form the, the trio again if you were here. Thank you, Rachel Maddow. I, I truly appreciate you. And I thank do. Thank you, Joy. Thank you. I do want to bring in uh, the great Nicole Wallace, uh, the one person in this gang of ours here that has worked for a president of the United States. And Nicole, nothing like this, even with Nixon uh, on the list, has ever happened involving a former president, because this is on another level because of the national security aspect. And again, we don't know the specifics of the indictment. And I appreciate Rachel for making that clear. But I am uh, eager to hear your thoughts on all of this. You know, it's so interesting to listen to um, you and Rachel talk about the national security aspects here, because I have been thinking about the stories of Trump's disdain for the men and women of the military, and I think it's deeply connected to this. He didn't want to be seen with people who were wounded fighting to protect the United States of America. He didn't want to go to ceremonies to honor veterans of wars, people who had fought for the United States of America, his disdain and his inability to appreciate sacrifice, service, national security equities, his affinity for Kim Jong-un and his affinity for Vladimir Putin all brought us to this point. And I've been obsessed with the dogs that haven't barked since he's been under criminal investigation for mishandling classified documents. He's also been under criminal investigation for violating the Espionage Act the whole time. And because those crimes are more opaque than the obstruction, which basically happened on Sean Hannity's TV show and on his true social feed, we haven't focused as much on the questions that you're focusing on tonight. And those are the violations of national security laws. He was under investigation by the Justice Department before he decapitated the top of DOJ by firing Comey, by firing McCabe. I mean, he has been a national security question slash threat since the day he was sworn in. And this feels like something that just finally caught up with him. The crimes were too blatant. They were too flagrant. He did them in front of too many people. And it appears he is now, after a very, very long period of time of disregarding, disrespecting, and violating all of the norms, crossed some lines and, at least according to Jack Smith and his investigators, committed crimes that he believes he can prove beyond a reasonable doubt. And and what do you make of the fact that we talked a little bit about the deference that the DOJ, you know, has for the president, the OMB memo that says you cannot indict a sitting president. Donald Trump was protected as he was clothed in the power of the presidency. But he used that on January 6th to try to stay in power, to essentially say that he was a king, that he was above the Constitution. That is the dog that hasn't hunted. We don't know what the specifics of this indictment are, but we're presuming that it has to do with the documents case. There is the other piece of what Jack Smith is investigating, which is um, the criminality around January 6th, for which a lot of Oath Keepers and Proud Boys are sitting, uh, are about to be sentenced or have been sentenced for seditious conspiracy. 
Yeah, I mean, look, Trump makes you feel like if you still reside on Earth One, where facts are facts and up is up and down is down, that you're the crazy one. It appears that Jack Smith resides on Earth One also. And whereas Mueller, you know, spent 23 months and from the gate was hemmed in by the OLC memo that said you can't indict a president, it also impeded his ability to articulate the crimes that Trump had committed that he discovered in this 23-month-long investigation. As you're smartly pointing out, all of the shields of the presidency, which he perverted and exploited to do what I think we all see that he did. He, he, he used them to protect him from wrongdoing, not to protect the office. That's why, that's why that memo existed. It didn't conceive of Donald Trump when it was created. But I think we're seeing what he looks like and what the rule of law might look like without some of those protections. You know, Donald Trump is sui generis. I mean, he is not even a member of the ex-presidents club um, that has brought together people as politically disparate as Barack Obama and George W. Bush, right? They, they, there's a bond that's formed among these former leaders. And of course, Bill Clinton and Jimmy Carter, who we are continuing to to, to watch uh, his health. Um, but they are all part of a group. But the thing that brings them together, Nicole, as you so well know, having worked for President Bush, is a reverence for the country and the Constitution. It is odd to have had a president that never expressed that rev that reverence, who only expressed um, sort of a disdain for the country, a sort of a darkness about um, his view of the United States. And do you think that that the sort of the way he went in was to say that America was in decline, uh, that America was not great, that it needed to be made great by his presence, um, perhaps is what wound up tripping him up. That perhaps if he'd had more reverence for the Constitution and for the country, he might not have arrogated these um, things to himself that he thought were his powers to take whatever he wanted, to do whatever he wanted and to stay in office. I would bet my caffeine addiction on the fact that he's never seen or read the Constitution. I, I really, I don't think it means anything to him. And it's so interesting that you bring up the former presidents. I mean, the moments when they spoke in unison with one voice in the same message were right after his election, before his inauguration, when they both defended the freedom of the press. They both spoke in unison on January 6th when they spoke together about the peaceful transfer of power and its importance in our democracy. So the fact that he's been on the other side of the ex-president's club really isn't an ideological or a partisan reality. It is what you're talking about. It is his disrespect and disregard for the Constitution and the rule of law. Are you concerned, um, as we uh, prepare to hand over to, to Chris Hayes, about the thing we spoke a little bit about earlier, the national security implications of indicting Donald Trump, particularly if he appears in Florida, where we have seen a rise in extremism? I'm more concerned about the the other path, right? I mean, I think you, you talk to people and you, and you look at people looking at our country from outside our borders, and there's an open question about whether the rule of law applies to everybody in America in the same regard, because they've watched what we've watched, someone who has trampled the Constitution, trample rules and laws that if any of the rest of us violated, we would have been prosecuted long, long ago. Uh, Nicole Wallace, um, thank you, my friend. I appreciate you. And I want to also thank I, the great... I second Rachel. I'm glad you're in the chair. Very oh. glad you're in the chair, my friend. Thank you, my friend. I suspect we're all going to be in the chair tomorrow, spending some time <laughs> together. <laughs> I'm just guessing. I'm just guessing. Um, thank you, Nicole Wallace, Rachel Maddow. Thank you very much. The great Maya Wiley, Harry Littman, Ellie Mistal, who is here with me 
Bobby, Ari Melber. We brought the we brought the big guns in tonight. And now we're going to continue to bring Ryan Riley. I want to thank him as well. And everyone who was here with us tonight. I want to throw it to another big gun. Uh, Chris Hayes. I, I toss it to you, my friend. This is one of the biggest nights, I think, for any of us who are in this business. It is a night of pathos, not of joy, in the sense that the American Republic um, is having to witness the, the sort of denigration of the, of the presidency or the former presidency um, in the form of the apparently now confirmed indictment of Donald Trump. Yeah, I mean, there's something so um, different about uh, the Manhattan district attorney indicting Donald Trump for actions that he took in the run up to him becoming the president in that hush money payment scheme. Um, we have a multi-jurisdictional form of justice. There are different jurisdictions for different crimes. The United States Department of Justice. I mean, this is the sort of republic at its, you know, defending itself against itself in some senses here. <laughs> it does feel right. I mean, it, yeah. it feels like we're at the kind of we talk about these like all the cliches we use about guardrails or what the sort of binding constraint of the law is. Right. Like this is actually the thing that we're now formally testing. Right. The, the, the test is upon us. We knew it was coming. I'm wondering how you're feeling about it tonight. Well, I mean, the reality is, is that if a former president can commit any crime, then we have a king and not a president. Then that means that by becoming president, you achieve immunity from the law. And I think the test here for Merrick Garland and the Justice Department was whether or not they were going to essentially immunize Donald Trump from any and all conduct. And we knew that the, the DA in Manhattan said, he wasn't going to do it, but that is a state doing it, right? We anticipate that we don't know what Fonnie Willis is going to do. But if the federal government can say that by getting this one job that you have for four or eight years, you are now free to conduct any level of criminality and including criminality that involves our national security. You know, what happened on January 6th was unimaginable, I think, to you, to me, to any of us, that a president could attempt a coup to stay in power that would have involved the, the killing of his vice president. Donald Trump's conduct has been so beyond the pale that if this hadn't happened, I think I would have started to question whether there was a rule of law. I think that this is the natural outcome when you do the things that Donald Trump has done. And so I'm actually relieved that our system actually does have what do appear to be real guardrails. And as you said, that the executive branch is willing to act against its former self. Um, that's very well said, uh, Joy. Thank you so much uh, you. for the toss. And MSNBC is going to be live here all night. Today's news requires more facts. Palestinians and Israelis are blaming each other for the tragedy that has inflamed the region. More analysis. Most of the states with the worst rates of gun deaths are ones where Republicans control the state government. And more perspective. This is not just about women and pregnant people in Texas. This is about people across this country. The world's never been harder to understand. That's why it's never been more important to try. MSNBC. Understand more.